now you got electronic evidence in a dog bite case. <laughs> and you never know where the electronic evidence is going to pop up. It pops up everywhere all the time. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of First Chair, the e-discovery education podcast from Exact Data Discovery. I'm XDD's Director of Education and your host for this podcast, Matthew Verga. Each episode on First Chair, we invite guest experts to sit down with me for 20 to 30 minute conversations about a single important e-discovery topic. From technology developments to legal developments to best practices and beyond, First Chair exposes you to experienced legal and technical practitioners and their expert insights into our continually evolving industry. Much of eDiscovery's challenge comes from that unending evolution. Commercial hardware and software iterate rapidly. Adoption happens virally. User behaviors change frequently. That ongoing evolution creates not only technical challenges, but also ethical ones, as expectations and best practices struggle to evolve at the same pace as the hardware and software we use. To help us learn about these ethical entanglements and how practitioners can avoid them, our guests today are Sharon Nelson and John Simic, the President and Vice President of Sensei Enterprises, Inc., a legal technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensic services company in Fairfax, Virginia. Sharon is a practicing attorney and a past president of the Virginia State Bar, the Fairfax Bar Association, and the Fairfax Law Foundation. She has also co-authored 18 books published by the ABA. John is a certified information systems security professional, a certified ethical hacker, and a nationally known expert in the area of digital forensics. Welcome, Sharon and John, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matthew. We're pleased to be with you. It's great to be here. So just what are some of the ethical rules that govern e-discovery? Well, I think the one that's probably most important is the Rule 1.1 competence. Uh, and of course, that's the one that's most commonly violated. Um, <laughs> so that, that, that's a very big one. And, and California became the first state uh, some years back in 2015 to require competence in e-discovery. Um, and while they're... they're Adoption of that rule was very good. Uh, ethicists that we've talked to have said that that is inherent in the rule itself, so it doesn't need a separate rule. But I, I did think it was nice that California said, look, if you're not competent to handle e-discovery cases, you've got to acquire the skills needed. You have to find a skilled lawyer to associate with or some expert assistance. Or three, and they're, they're very specific, decline the representation. Um, of course, that doesn't always happen that way, but there are other violations as well that we see. Often, if you're not competent, you risk uh, putting out client data where you shouldn't. So 1.6 uh, confidentiality is, is a very big deal. We have seen, uh, just as a for instance of that, we have seen people who don't know how to do their due diligence with their expert witnesses. Their expert witnesses are on an unsecured uh, machine or in an unsecured network. And yet they've got the data, so you know, unencrypted. Unencrypted. Oh, yeah. yeah. So sure. the, the, that is a violation. And then, of course, there's supervision rule 5.1, um, and so you're responsible for others who are working with you on these things to make sure that things are done competently and that confidentiality is retained. 
So there may be others implicated, Matthew, but I think those are the big three. And under those rules, uh, what are some of the most common ethical violations you're seeing practitioners uh, commit uh, wittingly or unwittingly uh, in e-discovery? You know, it's too long a list for, for 25 to 30 minutes. <laughs> but but let, me, let me give you just a few of them. Um, they don't know how to assess the case when they initially get it. Um, so they end up spending more of the client's money than they need to. What they should do is bring in an expert, at least for an initial consultation right away, and the expert can help them determine uh, what, where they need to go. They can, they can build a road, road map. Um, a lot of times they, they don't issue a litigation hold, um, or they forget to issue a litigation hold to their own client as opposed to just the other side. They don't understand the client's uh, method of data storage. They don't understand necessarily how to collect it. Um, they don't have a, mean, a meaningful meet and con confer, which, which is always a help to get things going smoothly. They don't know how to search the data. They don't know the search terms and how to come up with them to be effective. Um, some of them are still not using technology-assisted review, and they don't understand things like redaction or how to use Excel spreadsheets or uh, the best format being native. They still want to, well, I don't know why, they still want to produce something other than native. There, there are reasons to do that in select cases, but, but not normally. Um, and then, of course, they have hiding the ball, uh, which is something judges detest, uh, uh, not being candid toward the tribunal, uh, not being fair to their opponents, and foliation of evidence. And, and I think that's probably enough for one answer, but you get the picture. <laughs> There's a whole lot of mistakes they can make. Indeed, indeed. Sound, sounds like a minefield. Um, how competent do you think attorneys actually are overall on e-discovery? Do you think it's gotten better over the last 10 years? Uh, in, in, ten, in 10 years, uh, marginally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's, it's, as Sharon said, we still hear arguments of, you know, of, against native production, which I just don't understand since it's, you know, it, it's the cheapest way to do it. Maybe that's their driving force is to, you know, do that tip production so that, and then come back and OCR it later. But, you know, even the federal rules say, you know, you, you're not supposed to, degrade the quality of, of the evidence as part of production. And yet, generation of this chip stuff does that. So there, there's this, this fighting, constant fighting over that. That's one thing that's pretty frequent. The other one that we get, geez, and Sharon, you probably think 95, 97% of the time, these arguments and discussions over metadata. And, and yeah, somebody threw out the term metadata, and now you know that's the holy grail. We gotta argue about metadata. And most of the time, it's not important. It, seriously, yeah. In our cases, you know, in, in the last five years, I would say, there's maybe been one case where metadata was, you know, was important to the case. Um, and anyway, that, that kind of is, is the whole argument. So that's why I say, I say marginally uh, better. Well, that, there was that quote from one lawyer who I just, I just love this quote. He said, I have to confess to this court, I am not computer literate. I have not found presence in the cybernetic revolution. I need a secretary to help me turn on the computer. This was out of my bailiwick. So, you know, that, that's when the judge was considering sanctions against him. And, and, and in fact, uh, the court did find that he was guilty of willful misconduct. So that, that, that wasn't a happy day in court. <laughs> Certainly not. 
I, I, I let's follow up on that. So, you know, just how do you think, on average, judges feel about the current level of sophistication among uh, e-discovery practitioners? Um, I, I don't think the judges are that happy, you know, either with it. I mean, they've they're we've been in, in courtrooms where they're telling the, the attorney, it's like, you know, why are you standing in front of me if you don't know the basics of e-discovery? You know, as, as an example, and what what did you mean that you didn't actually have a physical meet and confer? You just emailed a meet and confer back and forth. I mean, that's not getting down to the, the meat of anything. And even uh, you remember the Sharon some years back, Judge Laxey, that said that if you guys are having arguments over <clears throat> over your meet and confer and the re- reasonableness of of uh, dealing with e discovery, I want you to videotape. Something, wasn't there something about the physic particles or something? Yeah, they, 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 they behave they, differently. They, they change when observed, <laughs> and so do lawyers. <laughs> so he said he had never had to have the uh, the videotape made, but we, we we've had what, what was it, Judge Ellis? You, no, it was another judge who said that that if you play hide the ball in my court, rest assured I will remember your name. I think it may have been. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great line. It scares the pants off of the lawyers. So the ju- the judges are pretty. I-, I think they're pretty skeptical still. Well, it, it bears fruit too. I mean, back in in last not last year, geez, two years now, 2018, February 2018, they had a federal judge survey report, and only 23 percent of the judges that were surveyed thought that the typical attorney had any legal or technical competence in e-discovery. So that's you know that's going back two years. 63 percent of them thought. Thought their judicial their own judicial peers were at least competent. Uh, <laughs> God, I wish that number were higher too, though. But, <laughs> uh, and then you know, Magistrate Judge uh, <clears throat> Fashola wrote that it is distressing to start a new year with old bad news that lawyers still do not get it, and the chasm between the few who get it and the many who do not is still the size of the Grand Canyon. Um, he's not one to mix words either, but <laughs> but even you know, even Craig Ball and, and as you know. Uh, Matthew Craig is really big in, in the discovery world and, and a good friend of ours. Uh, he's frustrated too. I mean, you look at some of the writings that, that he's done recently and at least in our discussions with him and uh, he's, he's very much, and he, electronic evidence has moved, obviously migrated. I mean, we're very much in a mobile devices now um, and that world is, is different. You know, Windows and, and Mac computers are, are different today than they were back in the Windows XP days. So if the lawyers aren't competent and if they're not keeping up to breast up to speed on these things, they're not going to know what evidence may be particularly available or, or relevant in their cases. And, and that's, that's a big challenge. And I think those impressions are consistent with what we've seen on the education side. We, we provide materials for sort of a, a wide range of experience levels. And year in and year out, the, the fundamentals level stuff, sort of the intro courses, continue to be very popular. There's a lot of folks who are just learning the basics of those things for the first time every year. That's true. No, you're right. And, and like I said, in the, and since we've become very much mobile-centric, um, a lot of those rules that you might have thought you knew, you don't know anymore. <laughs> right, right. Um, so let's, let's go to, let's go to, uh, lawyers, uh, favorite category of gossip stories about other lawyers making, uh, entertaining mistakes. Um, have you all by any chance brought any good stories of ethical misadventures in e-discovery? Well, that, that was, that's always hard to select because there's so many of them, but, but one of the ones that goes back some years and it was here in Virginia. So I followed it carefully, but it was Luster versus Allied Concrete Company. That was in 2013, 
and um, the lawyer who had the wrongful death case, um, what happened was a concrete truck rolled onto his client's car, killing his wife very sadly. Um, and I'm not sure what, what quite possessed his client to go to Facebook and wear a T-shirt that said, I heart hot mom, but it was certainly nothing that was going to gain favor uh, in the case. And the attorney told the plaintiff to clean up his Facebook page. Um, so there were some photos, including that one, which was deleted. Uh, later, someone was at one of the experts was able to recover it. And then the email about cleaning up the Facebook page, um, uh, the lawyer said it, it had been lost and he blamed his paralegal uh, and later, I guess, came clean and said no, that he had hit it. Um, he had a five-year suspension from the Virginia State Bar and a fine of $542,000. Uh, and sadly, he literally left the profession of law. Um, you know, an otherwise, I'm sure, excellent lawyer, but he made a terrible error of judgment in that case. Maybe an, an, another one, I think that, uh, and, th and this is a common mistake, and it's the DOJ in failing redaction, and I just don't understand why in 2020, um, even today, we still see this. Uh, we had DOJ attorneys doing it. We had the what was the filing of a politician or whatever, the, the attorney for one of the politicians that... Uh, oh, recently. Yeah, yeah recently yeah, yeah. Uh, failed the redaction. But the, the DOJ one, back in September of 2017, it was a, a LIBOR rigging case against a former uh, Deutsche Bank trader. Uh, and basically what they did was they didn't properly redact a filing to the court, and they made reference to a testimony in a, in a UK proceeding. and you can't do that. You can't. Uh, you can't compel testimony in UK uh, probe and use it in the U U.S. court system. Well, the redaction essentially was taking a highlighter, a black highlighter, and just covering. And so, the, so the common way is to um, to expose that is just do a cut and paste, right? You cut, right. And, cut and paste that and stick it in a in another document and, and reveals it. So that. Uh, Attorneys aren't learning how to redact properly, which is not good. <laughs> but like I said, that, that, that's a pretty common one. Uh, we had another, another one where, and, and it's using the tools, I guess, that are available to you. Um, the, in particular, in, in e-discovery reviews, it was a Wells Fargo case. And originally they thought that, geez, this was a, you know, because a lot of the, the client, high-level client information was exposed. Um, but it really wasn't. It wasn't exposed by, by any uh, any hacker or anything. It actually was exposed by their own attorneys. Uh, but it was a de defamation lawsuit, uh, and there was a subpoena for the for the records for the court records. And the attorney didn't understand how to use, or really didn't understand how to use the review platform properly. And so when they got the as they as they were going through, um, this is a, a Angela Turiano was going through the review and then it's almost like Excel, you know, when it comes up on the screen and it shows mm -hmm. you the, the different email information and all, and a lot of the review platforms are similar. And then you tag them for privilege, you know, and all that, that nice nonsense, sure. which I don't have to explain for, for you folks, your, your listeners. But what you didn't understand was that it was a, only a partial view of the data. So 
In other words, like one screen would come up with, I don't know, 100 rows, 150 rows or something on it. And then that was it, fine. Then you go to the ne next file, yada, yada. Not really realizing that there's a little icon or a button down in the lower corner that said more. <laughs> and so you expose more data. Um, so what ended up happening was she only looked at a partial view and then did not uh, review the complete set of data, turned it all over to the other side, and there's all this client confidential information that was in it, you know, there's client assets or mortgage information, portfolio performance, social security numbers, uh, yada, yada. It was 1.4 gigabytes worth of, worth of data. When the opposing counsel saw this and they went, oh my God, no, I'm not supposed to have this stuff. So they notified her. Uh, and Isn't then, that funny that an opposing counsel has to discover this and now do yeah. the right thing? <laughs> Which is what they should do. Right, sure. I like, yeah. agree, but you know, it just it, it made headlines, obviously. But the, well, then then, the, then uh, the attorney goes and responds back and says, "Oh, well, you can't look at that stuff and, and return that CD as soon as possible." <laughs> and and the first time I saw the the, the fact, Jerry went, "Well, let's see. You don't know how to use an e-discovery platform, and you think that you can fit 1.4 gigs on a CD. <laughs> uh, you're not even using the right terminology. It had to be a DVD if that's what you're asking for." Um, so, but then to make matters worse, there was no protective order or confidentiality agreement in place. So, man, this, this, that case just yeah, I now in I, such a big hurry. I, I, I missed that one on my list of things that commonly happen and not having the, the order in place. Yeah, so that, that was one. Oh, yeah. Another famous. Yeah, uh, that, that's a, that's that's an error that a lot of practitioners still make. That's just such an easy belt and suspenders way to protect yourself, and a lot of folks still don't take advantage of it. Well, maybe that's consistent with the, the using a black highlighter to redact. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, and then a, another Virginia case that got a lot of uh, uh, a lot of press was the uh, Harleysville Insurance case uh, that was done in southwestern Virginia, uh, and uh, basically the, the the case revolved around. And I'm not going to go into a bunch of a the, the case facts and specifics, but it was a, an insurance claim, and there's a, 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 a fire inspector that the insurance adjuster went out and looked at the site and did all this stuff, and they put this data in this uh, in, in the box, actually, not Dropbox, but in the box, and then with a link to, to the attorneys, and then things kind of settled down, they cooled off, uh, but folks had forgotten that there was all this other information that was within this uh, this box folder with this this link. Uh, and then they made a court filing, and then within the court filing, they actually included the link to the uh, to the box thing and his reference to it. So opposing counsel saw that and went, oh, okay, well, let's click on this thing, or at least let's look at where this link goes. And sure as heck, there's all this stuff that shouldn't have been in there in that folder. Um, well, the magistrate judge at the time, you know, essentially said, well, geez, you know, this is like putting your data out in the park bench, and you know, it's. Uh, <clears throat> You should you shouldn't have done this. You exposed it. You waived privilege, you know, by doing by doing all this. Uh, it, the case was sub or that particular ruling was subsequently overturned um, because then they the rationale being that nah, it wasn't like sitting on a, on a box on a park bench. Uh, you know, box creates the a specific link. There's these randomly generated characters that were within it. It was inadvertent that they made reference to what that link was. You know, in the filing. You know, yada yada yada. I guess the, the, I don't know if you'd call it scary or, or funny thing about that entire case, and Sharon and I were very familiar with that case, but we were 
we were down in southwestern Virginia lecturing to the bench bar conference down there, not realizing that the um, the magistrate judge that was following us in the next presentation was the one that ruled in this case. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so right beforehand, I was like, oh my God, Sharon, man, we got we can't we can't badmouth this one. <laughs> well, wait, it's a good thing we knew before we spoke, uh, because we might have said something comical that might not have seemed comical to her. <laughs> but that's how that stuff goes. Um so that that was a big case. And then um Another one. Are, are you familiar, Matthew, with the Fannie Mae case? Oh, I, I am, but please fill our audience in. Well, that 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 was an oldie but a goodie too. That's 2009, and we still see this kind of conduct happening all the time. A government uh, attorney walks into, and I'm going to tell you the short version. He walks into a courtroom, doesn't know squat about e-discovery, does not have an ex expert uh, with him, um, and somehow. He manages to think that it's okay to enter into a stipulation about search terms, and he agrees to having hundreds of search terms. Uh, and he did not communicate to his client the ramifications of that that kind of agreement. But as it turns out, um, it, it when the search terms were run, it resulted in 660,000 documents being retrieved. <laughs> backup tapes. I mean, my God. And the, the real killer was that the dollar value there, what it cost the client was $6 million, which was 9% of the client's annual budget. <laughs> I can only imagine how fast that relationship descended into the pit. But that, that was one of the most egregious cases we've ever seen. But really, try, trying to make a decision on your own without expert help just doesn't make any sense. And I'm glad you mentioned search terms because if you re you remember that the case we had a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, this is a funny story. So search terms. So the, the lawyers thought, oh, well, this is cool. We're, we're pretty smart. We're going to, and the judge had said that you need to agree on, you know, I don't remember what the number was, 10 or 20 search terms each, you know, for each party. And, and we were doing the processing for the, the electronic evidence. So they're very happily give us the, these search terms. Uh, and we need to go and you know call through the evidence and, and and return it back, return the relevant data back. And as I look at the search terms and I'm going down, going yeah, that, these aren't the greatest that I would think because they never consulted us. The last two search terms in the list were the domain names of each party. <laughs> and I said, and I said, you know what? I'm going to save you a bunch of money because. <laughs> I don't need to process 1.2 terabytes worth of email. I'll just give you the whole darn mailbox. <laughs> I, I mean, stupid is as stupid does, as, as Forrest Gump once said. <laughs> that, was, that was really amazing. I'm, they did kind of get it after they thought about it. <laughs> but it took them a little while to think about it. <laughs> Maybe they we, were just we, really we, worried about loss and wanted to preserve as broadly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of data. <laughs> well, we always say we don't have a job. We got to work to play because <laughs> there's all this comical stuff that happens. <laughs> well, well, given given all of these uh, walls out there for folks like us to run into if we're if we're not well informed and well helped, how can lawyers who want to avoid these outcomes become more competent in e-discovery? <laughs> well, one way, Matthew, is is to listen to blogs like yours. Um, because that's where you learn a lot of stuff. It's, you know, it, it, blogs are great. You know, you, you 
uh, I'm sorry, podcast. <laughs> no worries. Uh, we their can, blogs wanna... are good too, and I was going to mention I was going to mention those. But but podcasts are great, and everybody can listen to those on a, on their commute in or while they're on the treadmill or whatever else. So we find that lots and lots of people are listening to podcasts, including our own. Um, and, and so there's that. And, and blogs are very useful because you can read them anytime you have a few minutes. You can take a, a, a break to read. Experts, you know, when you work with them, I think lawyers should just be susceptible to being taught by them. And that many lawyers are. I mean, they really do want to learn. But then you have lawyers who, I don't know what it is. They just don't want to learn anything about technology. That's not the part that interests them. So they, they don't always listen. And, of course, there's a, a lot of CLEs. Uh, on the, the topics of e-discovery or digital forensics. There's a lot of stuff to read online. Um, you can take all kinds of free webinars even. I mean, not every, most of the stuff is free. The CLEs you might have to pay for, but there's so much free information out there that's really good. You just want to find somebody who's not just doing something promotional. I mean, in this podcast, obviously you've been asking very substantive uh, questions. Our conversation is something that any attorney could learn from. And, and that's the point, is, is, is to do the constant learning and absorb it and take it with you into your cases so that you don't violate Rule 1.1 or Rule 1.6, um, but especially that, that rule of confidence. And, and you really do have to have a baseline knowledge of electronic discovery before you do these cases. Um, and if it's only baseline, you still need to ramp up. Well, and I think every case today is, you know, has some element of electronics involved in it. So, you know, that, that old argument, remember we... Heard that already? Well, this this is just a dog bite case. There's, you know, electronics doesn't involve isn't involved in this at all. Well, and, and that's we, gone now. Well, we pointed out that if if somebody were to say to their mom over email, "I've got this bogus case, but I think it really might turn into some money for me." Now you got electronic evidence in a dog bite case, <laughs> <laughs> and you never know where the electronic evidence is going to pop up. It, it pops up everywhere all the time. Absolutely. Well, Sharon and John, thank you both so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Uh, where can folks who want to uh, hear more of your insights or, or uh, learn more about Sensei Enterprises find you guys online? Well, they can go to our website, which is senseient.com, or they can listen to the Digital Detectives podcast on Legal Talk Network. Anything else you want to reference, John? Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, I, I think primarily I, 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 I a lot of stuff on it. And and I do a, a blog called Ride the Lightning, which covers a lot of these kinds of issues as well as cybersecurity issues. So that might be another source, but um, I, I think that about covers it, Matthew. Outstanding. Thank you once again to our guests today, Sharon Nelson and John Simic, for taking time out of their busy schedules to share those insights with us. And thank you to all of you for joining us for another episode of First Chair. If you'd like further information about ethical issues in e-discovery or other topics, please check out our libraries of free articles, practice guides, white papers, and webinars in the Learn section of our website at exactdatadiscovery.com. That's exact. X-A-C-T. X-D-D, because you need to know.